1 John chapter number 5. We'll spend the next several weeks dealing with the, with the closing out of this chapter, and uh, we'll, we'll actually be having the same reading each week, and Lord willing, it will become very familiar with you, or to you, um, because there's a lot, as you, I was, we listened to Bruce read that, there's just so much there in those last verses that we're going to try to address in the next several weeks, and so um, come, come ready to hear from the Lord this morning, we're going to focus on verse 13, just, just this one verse in, the, in, the, um, in this chapter. And, and if you were, uh, I, I titled the message, Believe, See, Know, and Grow, which we find all four of these things in, the, in this verse. And if I was going to um, have a secondary title to it, it would be the wrap-up, because uh, this verse really, it, it encompasses all of the book. It says what the rest of the book says. And it kind of like if you were in a speech class, they would tell you when before you're done with the speech, make sure you reiterate what you've already said so that everybody kind of has a, a picture of what's being said. This is, that, this is that verse that reiterates what's already been said throughout the rest of the book. So we're going to spend some time this morning reiterating what has been said throughout the rest of the book so that we can um, prepare ourselves to, to close out what, uh, what the Lord has for us through his word. Um, the way that this closes out, this, the way that this book closes out with this verse or um, prepares to close out is very similar to what happens in John chapter number 20 in, in John's gospel where John says, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John writes in his, in his gospel, he writes for the purpose of getting people to believe who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Son of God, um, that he is God the Son. And then the, the epistle or the letter that John writes is the purpose of it is to just affirm those who believe. It's to bring assurance of a person's salvation. It's to um, strengthen them in their walk with the Lord. It's to en empower them to do what God has called them to do. That's the purpose of the, of the epistle of 1 John. And so John writes a gospel to say to us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and by believing, you might have eternal life and be saved. And, he, and, he, and he, he spends a whole book talking about all of the different, different characteristics of who Christ is and what he has accomplished and what he's capable of. And, and, uh, and, and he unpacks the gospel for us in, in this one book. And then he, he comes along again later in his epistle and says to us, I, I want to write again, and, and this time I want to affirm you. I want to assure you that you are one of those people that, um, that uh, listened to what I wrote in my gospel and, and, and obeyed and submitted to the uh, message of Jesus Christ being God the Son and, and surrendered, uh, repented and surrendered in faith to him. So that's what 1 John is about. It's a, it's a book about distinctions um, you'll see all throughout the book, as we've already covered, um, those who say something to be true about themselves with their words, but they don't actually live it out. And, and John refers to them as false converts. And then those who actually live the things that they, um, that they say. And, uh, and he says that these are actually uh, true believers. And that's really kind of, again, uh, encapsulating the, the entire book. I'm going to just reread the verse to you, and then, and then we'll unpack it 
uh, John writes and says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In verse number 13, we have the answer to a very common evangelical or evangelistic question. Um, perhaps you've even heard this question, and maybe you've asked it to somebody who you have, been witnessed, you have been witnessing to, or perhaps has been witnessing to you. The question is, are you, if you were to die tonight, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? Now, how many of us have heard that question before? I mean, how many of us have asked, how many of us either heard or asked that question before? Okay, a lot of us have, are familiar with that question. It's, you see it in a lot of gospel tracts that are out there. It's kind of that question that's used to, to uh, draw a person in to eternal things, to get them to begin to think about um, their eternal soul. And the fact that Hebrews tells us that um, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. In other words, we're all going to stand before God one day, and we're going to give an account for our lives. And, and it's important for us to consider that now versus waiting until we um, have to stand before him in the future. Now, with this question being asked, it's important that we can answer the question in the affirmative. Yes, I am 100% sure that I will go to heaven, that I have eternal life now, and that I will one day spend eternity with God. I am 100% sure of that. That's what this verse says. I've written these things to you so that you might be 100% sure that you have eternal life. These things have I written unto you that you might be 100% sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Right? It's a pretty crucial question. It's a pretty significant question. It's, it's not just a question that we think about for ourselves, but it's a question that we consider for our children. It's a question that we consider for our grandchildren, for our parents, for our aunts and uncles. It's a, it's a question that we consider for our neighbors. It's a crucial question, and, the, and, and it's important that we're able to answer the question in the affirmative with confidence, but it's also important that we're able to answer the question with objectivity. In other words, when you answer the question, you have to have something to support your answer. You can't just say, the majority of people, if you ask them if they're going to go to heaven when they die, the majority of people would want to be able to say, yes. They, they would want to be able to have that affirmative answer. But it's not just that we're able to say yes to the question, but we're able to objectively, with evidence, say yes to the question. There's got to be something supporting what you're saying. When somebody asks you, are you 100% sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Are you 100% sure that you're going to be with God for eternity? The answer ought to be in the affirmative, but it ought to be in the affirmative based upon certain things that are objective and not subjective. Otherwise... Otherwise, folks, we're putting our faith and our dependence for our eternal destiny in something that is faulty. And we must be totally careful about that. The crucial question, again, must be answered in the affirmative with objectivity. And when it is answered in the affirmative with objectivity, it will ultimately bring assurance, joy, and purity, as we see all throughout the book of 1 John. 
Unfortunately, most people, when asked this question, answer it by pointing to something that has taken place in their past, whether it be an event, a ceremony, a decision, or an action. Many of the common ones are, well, I said a prayer when I was a young child, and I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart when I was five years old, and therefore I am very, very sure that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Now, unfortunately, the problem with that argument is it's not a biblical argument, There really is no foundation at all in God's word to support the argument that somebody who asked Jesus to come into their heart is guaranteed that they're going to go to heaven when they die. As a matter of fact, Matthew 7 says there will be many people who will call the Lord, Lord, right? Which means master. They will call the Lord, Lord. They will call him master and and he will say to them, I never knew you depart from me into everlasting condemnation. Saying a prayer. Uh, I said a prayer when I was a child. I was baptized as a child. I, I've gone through catechisms, catechism class, or, or, or maybe there's some great deed that you've done in your life, something that you have, uh, maybe you've given some money, or you've, uh, you've done some great deed, and that great deed is kind of stuck with you as being, that's evidence for me. I know that I'm saved because this event has happened in my life. Now, one of the interesting things about 1 John is is 1 John is written to bring this assurance of our salvation, but in in, in every case in the book, it never uses a past tense verb. It always uses the present tense. In other words, what John says is if you want to know that you have eternal life, I want you to look at your life right now. Look at your life in the present And confirm that you are one of God's children, not based upon what happened to you yesterday or what happened to you 20 years ago, but confirm what what is happening in your life now as the foundation for your eternal security. Listen, folks, we know this is a reality. He says in chapter number two that there was a group of people who were, who were actually going in the same direction that we were going, and they actually fell away and went the other direction. So was there not a season when it seemed like they were actually on board? And then he says this, they were, they were among us, but they were not of us. They were not one of us. Matthew 13, the parable of the four soils. There are definitely people who have signs of life, but never produce fruit. And are ultimately found to be unbelievers and not believers. We must all be very cautious of this. You say, this is, or I would say, this is the reason why John wrote this book. So that we wouldn't flounder in and out of of assurance and, and lack of assurance, but we would be confident in our salvation, but the confidence in our salvation would be built around something that is that is sure and real and tangible. That we can know that we have eternal life. So I want to look at four things found here in this verse that will help us to know, to be assured of our condition, of our position with the Lord. Number one is the audience. John writes to a group of people. He says, these things, have I, that these things 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to a very, very specific group, and they're identified or labeled by the term believer, right? Okay, that's, that is the, the identification, the mark that identifies them. The word believer comes from the Greek word pastuo, and it means to, to be persuaded, to trust in something, or to have confidence in something, Okay. Now, it's important to also understand that what John is not saying in this text is anyone who believes in anything can have confidence that they're going to heaven when they die. He's not saying that. John is not saying just because you believe you're going to go to heaven, but he makes it very clear all throughout the entire book that it's what you believe in that, makes, that builds your confidence that you will one day stand before the Lord. It's what is your faith in? What are you trusting in that causes you to have confidence that you are one of God's children? It's not just that you believe. We, 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 have, a culture of, we have a culture of believing, but the foundation of what we're believing in or the, the object of what we're trusting in is not very sure, right? Okay? If I had 500 pounds of weight up here and I told you that I believe with all my heart that one of these young men could come up here and lift it off the ground, it doesn't matter how much I believe in that reality, the, the reality of it is the object of my faith in these young men being able to lift this 500 pound weight, is, it, it's ungrounded, is it not? It's got to be that we're putting our faith, the object of our faith is the right thing. The object of our faith is capable of doing what we're trusting in it to do. So if somebody believes in baptism to bring salvation, or they believe in the Lord's Supper to bring salvation, or they believe in uh, catechisms to bring salvation, are any of these things capable of bringing salvation? So by believing them, do they make a person saved? Jesus is the only one who is capable of bringing salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross for our sins, rose the third day, conquering death, conquering Satan, conquering hell, conquering all of those things that were against us. Jesus conquered those things, and when we place our faith in him, we can have confidence. We can have, we can have solid, objective confidence that I am a child of God because I have trusted in what his son, Jesus Christ, has done for me on the cross. I am persuaded I am confident, I am persuaded that Jesus Christ is sufficient. I am persuaded that Jesus Christ is enough. I am persuaded of these things. So according to the letter, let me give you a few things very quickly. If you're jotting down notes, these would be healthy for you. We must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God the Son that he is equal with God in every way. He has divine authority, he has divine right, he has divine power, and he has divine glory. When he stands in front of the Father and he speaks for us and he intercedes on our behalf, he intercedes with equal authority with God the Father. He is not less than God the Father, he is equal to God the Father, he is the same. I and my Father are one. We must acknowledge and accept and embrace that Jesus Christ is God the Son. 
according to the scripture. That was chapter 4 and 15 and chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 23 through 4, 2, we are told that Jesus Christ was a man, that he, being God, became a man, that he took on human form, that he was the son of man, sufficient to save us, to be the sacrifice for man's sins. We must embrace the fact that he is the savior of the world, that Jesus Christ came for the purpose of saving. The Bible tells us in the other gospels and Matthew that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. We must believe that Jesus Christ is capable of cleansing us from all of our sins. In chapter one, I'll read it to you in verse number seven. The Bible says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. We must embrace the fact that Jesus Christ is capable of cleansing us from all sin and not just capable, but has promised us that he will cleanse us from all sin. We must embrace the fact that he is our advocate. Chapter two and verse one, the Bible says, these things have I written unto you that you sin not. But when we do sin, we have an advocate with with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one or the one who is righteous. We must embrace him as our advocate. The reality of it is, is every last one of us sins. But we not only have one who died in our place, but we have one who advocates for us every single day. That's the freedom of living for the Lord, is that we know we have an advocate when we fail. He is there to speak on our behalf. We must believe that based upon Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven, we have been restored to God, and we are overcomers. We must embrace these things as a reality. Listen to what he says in chapter number two. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Or, in other words, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have a relationship with the Lord. And I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I love how he speaks in the affirmative in each one of these cases. He doesn't say, I write to you because you might do these things. He writes to them because they have done these things. These things are a reality for them. We must embrace embrace. We must embrace that our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. We must embrace that Jesus Christ has restored us to God the Father completely. We must embrace the fact that we in Christ Jesus have overcome. We must believe that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God who is our eternal life and is our strength. Chapter four and verse four says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We must believe these things. See, it's not just about believing what we want to believe. It's about believing what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. There are too many people in our world today that have embraced a false view of who Jesus Christ is and they're lost and they're on their way to hell believing and trusting that they're on their way to heaven 
We must believe and embrace that we have been, are being conformed into the image of Christ. The Bible says in chapter number three and verse number two, beloved, we are God's children now and what we shall be or what we will be has not yet been revealed but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8 says that we have been um, predestined to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, so the first thing that John says in this letter is, I'm writing to people who believe. I'm writing to people who have embraced Jesus Christ, and everything that God's word says about him. I'm writing to a group of people that have forsaken their own, their own ability to enter into God's favor on their own merits, and a people that have embraced what Jesus Christ has done for them to, to bring them into God's presence and allow them to enter into his presence with favor. This is the people that John is writing to. So we can know who we are, we can know where we're at, we can know who he wants to affirm in the gospel by knowing these things. The second thing that we need to identify here is John says, these things have I written unto you who believe. So number two is, what are these things? What does John write to these people who believe? The people who have embraced Jesus, what does he write to them to assure them that they are God's children? The second thing is, is the evidence. John writes about the evidence. John writes to them about, here are evidences, here are proofs that you are God's children. Here are evidences that you are one of God's. And they're not... They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're attributes, they're physical evidences that we can see. We're identified by works that accompany our faith. James tells us in verse, chapter 1 and verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then he says in chapter number 2 in verse 18, he says, someone will, someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Get this, you believe that God is one, pretty deep theology, right? You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Do you not do you want to be known, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith apart from works. And, and James is about being, you, you'll see in the book of James terms like man is not justified by faith alone. Now we know that man is justified by faith alone, don't we? Romans tells us that man is justified by faith alone. The whole book is about justification by faith alone. James says man is not justified by faith alone. Now, do we have a conflict? Martin Luther hated the book of James because he said that James does not coincide with Romans. He believed he had to make a decision between the two. The issue is this. James is written 
to justify that you've been justified. James is written to prove, to give evidence to the fact that justification has happened, that God has saved you, and because God has saved you, there will be, there will be works. You will manifest what God has done in you. Matthew chapter number 7, the Bible says, we will know them by their fruits. We will know them by their fruits. Now, a few things about this, the evidence, very quickly. They are fruits and not works. They are fruits and not works, okay? And let me give you a definition of that. A fruit is that which flows naturally out of a, out of a regenerate heart. And a work is that which is manufactured by an unregenerate heart. A fruit is something that flows from what's on the inside. A work is something that you manufacture on the outside. A fruit is always going to be, have an internal perspective. A work is always going to have an external perspective. So let's look at some of the fruits in 1 John. Some of the evidences that a person is a believer. Okay, we looked at what they believe in, but now we get to see some fruits of that. Okay? Um, number one, and let me say this to you as well. Fruits are attitudes more than they are actions. Fruits are the why you do what you do more than they are what you do. Okay, does, does that make sense? It's easy to do the right thing and have the wrong attitude towards it, and that's not fruit. That's work. It's transformative to be able to do the right thing because you have the right attitude. So when John writes, and he writes over and over again about different fruits, he's not talking about the actual work, but he's talking about the heart. What is going on in your heart? So let's look at some. He says in chapter number one, walking in the light. If you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God. He says the first one is to walk in the light. The idea of walking in the light is to have a, a heart of transparency and confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, a redeemed heart will be a heart that is not afraid of being honest about their sins. They will be transparent. They will be real. There, there is, listen, there's no reason to hide anymore, right? There's no reason to hide anymore. Your sins have been forgiven. You're, you're, you've been justified. You've been counted innocent. There is no reason for us to hide anymore if, if we believe that our sins have been forgiven. So one of the things that we will do naturally is we will walk in the light. We will walk in transparency. One, one of the things that you'll find scripturally is this. The Pharisees, one of the great attributes, or one of the, one of the bad attributes, but well-known attributes of the Pharisees is that they were really good at covering up their sins, right? They were, the Bible says that they were clean on the outside. They had done a really good job of cleaning the outside, but the inside was dead man's bones, right? So that's the realm of the Pharisee. What John writes about is not this Pharisaical Christianity, but he writes about a heart change. 
that causes us to live out that change. Number one, walking in the light. Number two, joyful obedience and submission. God gives us a submissive spirit. He says in chapter five and verse three that we're to keep his commandments and that his commandments are not to be a burden to us. It's a joyful submission to the Lord. It's a joyful surrender. We don't have to, you know, I've often said, and, and Romans 6 says the same thing, it's not that we have to do anything, it's that we get to do things. The bondage is when you have to do sinful things. The freedom is, is when we get to do righteous things. God, God, has, God has set us free so that we can serve him. Joyful obedience, number three, a love for God and for others. All throughout the book of 1 John, when the Lord saves us, we have a love for God and we have a love for others. Number four, a practice and a pursuit of godliness. All throughout chapter number two, the Bible talks about those who have been born again do not practice unrighteousness, but they practice godliness. And you ask yourself the question, and you guys all know what the word practice means, right? Okay, we know what happens when a kid goes off to practice for baseball. They're going to go and try to get better at baseball. When you're practicing godliness, it means you're trying to get better at it. You're trying to become, you're trying to, to master it, if you will, to walk in it, to learn it. When Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I that I want to do, these are the things I don't do. That was what he was talking about. He, he hadn't mastered what it was to do those things that he desired to do in his heart. A Christian will, master, will pursue in, uh, the practice of godliness and holiness. A Christian is a believing person. A Christian is a listener and a learner. 1 John 4 and verse 6, the Bible says that those who are born again will listen to what we say. Listen to the word of God. They are fearless. They are fearless. The Bible tells us in 1 John that the perfect love casts out fear. And then they are victorious. They are overcoming. These are attitudes that have been planted in the heart of believers. And it's not enough that one of these attitudes resides in you. It's the whole package of these attitudes. It is, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So that's the evidence. These are things that identify as somebody says, I know, I'm 100% sure that I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. The question is, okay, what's the evidence? And the evidence cannot be some external thing that they did. Well, I went to church last Sunday, or I put money in the offering plate. The evidence is something that is in them that they can see coming through them. The evidence is, is I used to be a really, really angry person, and I'm not anymore. That's pretty good evidence, right? The evidence is I used to be a really bad, lustful person, and I'm not anymore. The evidence is I used to be addicted to this lifestyle, and I'm not anymore. Those are pretty good evidences, right? That we are truly indwelt by something that is bigger than we are. Because the reality of it is, is our nature, our flesh in its lost condition does not try to overcome sin. It tries to hide it and live in it. Number three, what's the intention? He says in the verse here, he says, these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. Here's the intention. Number one is he wants us to know. This is the idea, again, of being fully persuaded by being totally convinced 
that something is 100% true and accurate. John wants us to be 100% persuaded that we are God's children. To know. He wants us to know. And he gives us evidences of how we can know. He wants us, number two, to know that we have. The word have there is very, very important because it's a past tense term. It means not that we're getting eternal life, not that we're pursuing eternal life, but that we have eternal life. Matter of fact, in John 17, when Jesus Christ is praying, he talks about the glory that he has already given to those who believe. That we already have this. It's not something that we're pursuing. It's something that we have. John wants us to know that we have something. We possess it already. It's already ours. It's not something that we're pursuing. It's something that we have. And what is, he, what is it that he wants us to know that we have? He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. In, in other words, and we've talked about this last couple of weeks, John wants us to know that we have Christ's life. That we have the life of Christ living inside of us. That it is his life that is the basis for any confidence that we have, right? Right? You see, see at, the, at the end of the day, when we embrace the fact that it is Christ's life in me that matters, not my life, but his life in me that really matters, it, it turns everything for good. That's why he says in chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, these things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. Do you guys think that a person who has embraced that Christ, that they have the life of Christ will have fullness of joy? In John's, in John's gospel, he says this. Jesus says, these things have I written unto you that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be full. We have to embrace the fact, we have to come to know that we already have, past tense, we already have the life of Christ living inside of us today. Then we have joy Chapter 2 and verse number 1, these things have I written unto you that you may not sin. So joy and purity come as the result of embracing that I have Jesus. It is his life in me. It is his life through me that makes me joyful. It is his life in me and his life through me that makes me want to live a pure life. You're familiar with Galatians 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but that Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is Christ in us. That, that is our hope. And that is our reality if we are his children 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, who became to us from God righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Christ is these things for us. 
He doesn't give these things to us. He is the gift, and in the gift of having Christ are all of these things. Sanctification, righteousness, justification, glorification, all of these things are packaged in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, what does he say in the verse before this? If you have the Son, you have life. In other words, you could say it this way. If you have the Son, you have it all. You need nothing more. But if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. And according to John 3, it says, if you do not have the Son, you do not have life, and the wrath of God abides on you. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. He wants us to know evidence, faith. He wants us to know based on those things that I am a child of God. There's no doubt in my mind to assure us of that. And then the last thing this morning is the outcome. He wants us to grow in this. In, in, the, in the ESV, it, the, 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 way that the, the first, the way that the beginning of this verse is phrased is implies this. And in the King James, it actually says it more thoroughly at the end of the verse where it says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. And it's emphasized in the first phrase of the verse in the ESV. The issue is this. The Lord, John wants us to know based upon objective evidence that we are children of God and he wants us to grow in knowing that we are children of God. And how do we grow in knowing that we're children of God? If If the basis for me being a child of God and being confident in it is the evidence and the belief, how do we grow in in knowing that we're children of God? What does the Lord say? He says in his word, add to your faith virtue and add to virtue knowledge and grow and grow and grow. And when you're growing, you are knowing. If you're growing in the Lord today, if you're passionate and excited about what God's doing in your life and you're winning over sin and you're, you're learning from him and his word and you're finding those rich nuggets from his word, you are assured, you are affirmed that you are his children. It is those who struggle to grow that have a hard time knowing. We need to be Growing in the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In the end, at the end of the day, might we embrace who Christ is. Might we believe and trust and, and cling to who Christ is. Might we produce fruits that lead to the knowledge of Christ and then we might grow in knowing him and knowing our eternal state. I'm going to close this morning. We're not going to have a closing song. I'm going to close with this verse out of Philippians 3. The Bible says in verse 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this cause I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us instruction that we might know that we have eternal life, not that we might question, not that we might be 95% sure, but Lord God, that when we're faced with the question, are we 100% sure that we would answer in the affirmative and that we would answer in such a way that we have evidence that points to what you have done in our lives. I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, they've become perhaps even more unsure as they look at their life and look at the fruits and the evidences. I pray that this would be the day that they would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I pray for the rest of us, Lord God, that you would build our confidence, that we would know what you have done for us, that we would trust and embrace who you are. Lord God, that we would become sure and that we would grow in serving you. Pray your blessing upon the remainder of this day and this week, that it would all be to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. You're dismissed.